Hey guys! So, um, well, welcome back to part three, well, part two and a half, we'll, we'll get there, but part two and a half of our series on Cicero. So, I was working on this, and I decided that I did not plan the series out well at all, and that there was a lot more stuff to cover in the last episode than there was in the first. If you'll notice, the first episode was about 40 minutes, the second one was an hour and 40 minutes, and this one's going to look shape up to be like, what, two hours. So I cut as much as I could, and I've also made the decision to split this episode into two parts. So a part one and a part two. And then both parts would put together and make our last and final big grand epic finale for Cicero. What fun. Anyways, I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer. Let's just get right into it. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. And I've looked over. And I've seen... This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note. Nuestras fuerzas deben proseguir sus operaciones contra el enemigo en todos los frentes de batalla. Revolución sí. And then consequently, this country is at war with Germany. Hello, and welcome to Storyboard History, episode... 1-2.5. Oops. <laughs> Alea Iacta Est. Classes. Rich and poor. They've always been a thing, and they've always caused problems with each other. You know, just ask anyone in history, any sort of revolution or social upheaval, and chances are, class has something to do with it. And this was the case in Rome, too. For centuries, there had been a growing, growing divide between the aristocrats and the plebeians. This is seen in the assassination of the Gracchi brothers, two revolutionary tribunes of the people, 200 years before our story starts. It was seen in the social war that Cicero fought, and it was seen in the war between Sulla and Marius. And today, it's seen in Clodius versus Cicero. And soon, it will be seen in Caesar. This conflict had been bashing the Republic for centuries. And finally, it was about to come crashing down. So, back to our story. If you'll recall, Cicero has just been ex exiled by Clodius who is proceeding to run rampant through the streets of Rome, beating up anyone who dares challenge him. The First Triumvirate, the political alliance between Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, who had been basically controlling the Republic, let, it, let him slide at first, but now he's becoming very, very powerful. And Pompey especially is getting wary. He was an ally of Cicero, after all, and did not like the radical populism and, you know, just general brutality and tyranny that Clodius was running. 
eventually it came to a point where Pompey suggested, hey, what if we bring Cicero back? And Clodius tried to have him assassinated. Ugh. Cheerful. Anyways, this kind of tit-for-tat thing between Pompey and Clodius only got worse and worse. Eventually, Pompey had had enough. He went to some of the other tribunes. Remember, Clodius is a tribune, but he's only one of several. And the others aren't super fond of him, especially ones that are allied with the Optimates. The two guys he goes to are Aeneas Milo and Publius Cestius. And you're only going to remember, need to remember Milo's name. Cestius just kind of vibes the whole time. But anyways, he takes Milo and he puts him in charge of a bunch of these gangs, like Clodius's gangs, but, you know, fighting for Pompey's side. He has them trained by gladiators, eventually formed his own private army to face off against Clodius's private army. Uh, what happens next is just several years and years. This stuff goes on for a crazy long time. Years of just street fighting and chaos in the city of Rome between Clodius's people and Milo, a.k.a. Pompey's people. This goes on for a while. It gets to the point where Clodius blocks off Pompey's house and tries to lock him inside, which I'm sure anyone who's in quarantine right now, like me, is no, is really not fun. <sighs> the situation just gets worse and worse. This probably would have been a good time for Clodius to start making allies with the other triumvirate. I mean, the alliance had been more out of expedience rather than, you know, they actually like each other, and there were wedges that he could drive to at least, if not break it apart, convince Crassus and Caesar to call Pompey off. But instead, he got really, really frustrated that Caesar and Crassus weren't backing him up already, and he went so far as to use his power as tribune to declare that, hey, Caesar sucks. He smashes him, he starts to making saying all his actions are illegal, and just goes off on the guy. And this is where Clodius starts making a bunch of mistakes. Because he's strong, sure, but he's overestimating his own strength. He should not have just gone pell-mell against the entire first triumvirate. It was a fight he couldn't win. He could win against one, maybe, but he can't win against all three. So he's already fighting Pompey, and now he's alienated Caesar. And Crassus, sure, Crassus funds Clodius, but Crassus is not going to go against Pompey and Caesar. The three of them have to work together, and they each get what they want, a tit-for-tat thing. And Crassus was never going to risk that just for Clodius' sake. Caesar had been growing indifferent to Clodius' cause. Chaos was good for him, but only up to a point. And now that Clodius was attacking him, Caesar figured that Clodius had outlived his usefulness and needed to be dropped. So, Caesar came out and said, Hey, if you guys want to recall Cicero... I'm sorry, Caesar went out and said, Hey, if you guys want to recall Cicero, I won't stop you. The Pompeian faction, the Optimates, the aristocrats, saw this as their golden opportunity. They're like, bingo. So they get a group together and start going off in this huge campaign to bring Cicero back. And their job probably wasn't that hard. I mean, Cicero was still fairly popular, and he had chosen to go into exile rather than been forced to. So... Some people didn't like him, but the crowd was not... They didn't hate him. No one hated him. Everyone was kind of amenable to him. In the midst of all of this street violence and general bedlam, the Senate gets together for a vote, and they vote to bring Cicero back unanimously. Well, not unanimously. Clodius is the one guy who votes against it, but unanimously. And this is this is really a flex to the Optimates, kind of saying that, hey, Clodius, we're still in charge. Uh, right, right, guys? Right? But regardless of political theater and whatnot, 
they voted almost unanimously to bring Cicero back. During that same vote, there was a big crowd of people gathered in the square outside the Senate House. I'm sure you can picture it. Think of any protest today. A bunch of big decision goes on in a government building. There are usually protesters of some sort outside. And in this case, not totally sure what happened, but some sort of violent incident occurred that just developed into an all-out me um, melee in the square in which a ton of people were dead and Cicero's brother was almost killed. And this kind of starts to turn people against Clodius. I mean, anyone would if your neighbors are getting killed by a mob in the streets. So Cicero is now been voted back, and the people are turning against Clodius. So things are starting to fall apart for our friend Clodius. Now, remember, Cicero was having a really, really rough time in Greece where he'd, where he'd chosen to go. He was depressed, he considered suicide, he missed his country, he missed his family, all sorts of things. And news travels slow, but when eventually the, did the recall order reached him from the Optimates and Pompey saying, hey, please come back and help us, he was all for it. He spirits were rejuvenated, he hopped straight up and hopped on the first boat back to Italy. When he gets back... The Senate declares that he was he was right along. He's pardoned of all crimes. They return all of his property that had been confiscated by Clodius on behalf of the quote-unquote government. And they, excuse me, they order that his, that his house that Clodius had destroyed be rebuilt at public expense. Clodius wasn't going to take the setting down, of course, and he had his gang start targeting the workers building Cicero's house and setting fire to Cicero's allies and family's house, stuff like that. So this stuff is really starting to pick up. Clodius is mad, and he's going to show it. And the whole time, Milo and his gangs are fighting Clodius in the streets, and bedlam, chaos, woo, anarchy, what fun. Uh. Eventually, Clodius decides that Milo has become too much of a problem and tries to get rid of him. He brings him to trial on some sort of ridiculous charge of like inciting violence or whatnot. Now, it's true, but it was only inciting violence that was equal to Clodius's violence. This was political stage show, nothing more. And I don't even think Clodius expected to get Milo arrested for it. It was more of a statement saying, I can bring you to trial whenever I want. Uh, things didn't exactly go as planned. Since this was a kind of a focal point now between the two sides, Pompey and Cicero showed up, you know, bringing out the big guns. Cicero wrote an account to his brother, and, um... It doesn't seem like this trial went all that well. Clodius had repeatedly sent gangs to harass and interrupt uh, sessions that he didn't like. For example, when they were voting to have Cicero's recall, Clodius's gangs would storm into random meetings where they were discussing it and start injuring and beating up people. So for this trial, he brought his gangs with him too, just in case, you know, anything went south, let's say, and he needed a bit of muscle. Quote, on the seventh, Milo appeared. Pompey spoke, or rather wished to speak. For as soon as he got up, Clodius' ruffians raised a shout, and it, throughout his whole speech he was interrupted not only by hostile cries, but by personal abuse and insulting remarks. However, when he had finished his speech, for he showed great courage in these circumstances, he was not cowed. He said all he had to say, and at times, by his commanding presence, even secured silence for his words. Well, when he had finished, up got Clodius. Our party received him with such a shout, for they had determined to pay him out, that he lost all presence of mind, power, or speech, or countenance, control over his countenance. 
This went up on to about two o'clock, Pompey having finished his speech at noon, and almost every kind of abuse, and finally epigrams of the most outspoken indecency, were uttered against Clodius and Clodia. Mad and livid with rage, Clodius, in the very midst of his shouting, kept putting questions to his clack. Who was it who starved the commons to death? His ruffians answered, Pompey. Who wanted to be sent to Alexandria? They answered, Pompey. Who did they wish to go to? They answered, Crassus. The latter was present at the time, with no friendly feelings toward Milo. At three o'clock, as though at a given signal, the Clodians began spitting at our men. There was an outburst of rage. They began a movement for forcing us from our ground. Our men charged, his ruffians turned tail, Clodius was pushed off the rostra, and then we too made our escape for fear of mischief in the riot. End quote. So, what Cicero is describing there is basically a trial turned into a riot. Pompey gets up to defend Milo, the Clodius supporters in the crowd, there are a bunch of them, start yelling and making fun of him and hurling abuse and not letting him speak. Pompey goes on, undeterred, and then eventually Clodius gets up. Whereas where Pompey handled the taunting from uh, Clodius' supporters with maturity and kept going, Clodius handled the taunting from Pompey's supporters, uh, well, apparently, if Cicero is to be believed, not so well. He starts yelling and shouting and goes off on this tirade against, well, basically everyone. Eventually, it gets to the point where tensions are so high and everyone's yelling at each other that at some sort of prearranged or unison signal, the Clodius supporters start charging the Pompeii side of the courtroom. The Pompeii side charges back, it's chaos, people are fighting, someone tackles Clodius, knocks him off the podium, and this just turns into a riot. Cicero, Pompeii, and the other high-ranking optimates, you know, leaves, and they get caught in the middle of a riot, and this whole thing just turns into a huge embarrassment, and another sign of increasing tensions in the city. Clodius decides that this is not a good idea, and he backs off. He probably would have lost the case anyway. But Cicero decided that, now with Clodius being on the defensive after the disaster that was the court case, it was his turn to take action. He rallied a group of supporters, most of the Optimates and some of their allies, and marched down to the Tribune's Hall. There, Basically, what the tribunes did is when they made a law, they would write it down on these big stone tablets, kind of like the Ten Commandments. Well, he marched his supporters down there, and remember the Legata Clodii, the laws that Clodius passed, some of which were of dubious legality, while he had total control of the city? Cicero and his supporters grabbed those tablets and smashed them into itty-bitty pieces. A big statement. Kind of like someone marching into the Smithsonian Museum and burning the Declaration of Independence with a lighter. This was uncharacteristically brash of Cicero, but it the point got across. Now, not everyone was happy with people, you know, smashing laws in the street, and by not everyone, I mean Cato. Cato, remember, is the arch-conservative kind of head of the Optimates in the Senate, and he doesn't like Clodius, but since Clodius had given him a nice little governorship, he had stopped attacking him. And Cato's like, hey, Cicero, you, you can't just smash laws in the street. And, uh, well, this is the start of a beginning antipathy between the two men. Cicero and Cato are both big Optimates leaders, but all of a sudden, they're starting to have some conflict between them. Cicero and most of many of the other Optimates are actually starting to have some conflict between them. He's not totally fitting with the party as much as the other ones do. 
this is never gonna break into full, you know, just enmity. They're still gonna be friends, Cato and Cicero. But the break is starting to appear, and that's gonna be important later on. So this takes us to 53 BC, like every year, an election year. What fun. Uh, so both Milo and Clodius were standing for positions that year. Milo was running for consul, and Clodius was running for praetor. And this meant that they were both carrying, carrying, being flanked by even bigger groups of their armed guys. And they were walking around trying to show them, themselves off to the people to get support. And eventually, well, there was this big road leading in and out of Rome called the Appian Way, lined with statues, a whole fancy shebang, you know, big thing, super symbolic. And one day, Milo and his people were walking down the Appian Way, and so were Clodius and his people. And there are a lot of debate about how this went down. Some people think it was a planned battle. Both sides, or at least one side, knew the other one was coming and met, walked out to meet them, to fight them. Some people think that Milo ambushed Clodius and uh, had this whole thing planned all along. Some, think people some people think Clodius saw Milo and charged. Uh, you know, if you want a list of possible causes, go to Wikipedia. It's, I've got them all there. But it's totally possible, and I think maybe the most likely explanation is that these two armed groups of people who hate each other are walking past each other on the road. You know, in the back, two guys get into a fight. Someone bumps into each other. People start pushing. People start shoving. And eventually, a javelin gets thrown. Someone gets hit. And it all just descends from there. The two groups start immediately fighting. And this is Clodius himself and a bunch of his armed supporters and Milo himself and a bunch of his armed supporters. The brawl breaks out and Milo's people win. And Clodius is either killed in the fight or he makes it to an inn where Milo's people break in and kill him in there. And that's it. Clodius's reign of terror is over. So, Clodius. He was a, certainly a colorful character. Uh, lots of fun stories about him. And he was also brutal. He used force to bully people into submission when he didn't get his way. And he was probably just not, all around, not a great dude. But there's so much we just don't know about ancient history, it's really tough to make those kind of judgments. In the end, though, he did choose to win politics through force. And he lost politics through force, you know? Live by the sword, he died by the sword. Anyways, this is kind of just another breaking point in a whole slew of breaking points for Rome. Milo is arrested and put on trial for, you know, murdering a political opponent. He hires Cicero to speak for his defense, but it doesn't go so well. There's the cr crowds and angry mobs of supporters are everywhere, because as popular as Cicero was, Clodius had a ton of super ultra-radical supporters. I think of any politician today who has their kind of supporters and then their base of super hardcore, dedicated supporters. Clodius had that too, except he had a lot of them. So at this trial, they're all there. Pompey gets to the point where Pompey is so nervous about possible chaos, he brings in the army, his army, to maintain order and stand a guard over the trial. Well, apparently, the, all the soldiers, the yelling, the mobs, got to Cicero because if Plutarch is to be believed, he was off his game. His, the one, the, not once, the usually great orator slipped up. He was unconvincing. He was just, you know, off. Kind of like the baseball player was in a slump. It didn't go well. 
and Milo lost the case. Now, Cicero was able to stop him from being straight up executed, but Milo was exiled. Although, don't feel too bad for Milo. I mean, he wrote Cicero a letter a little while, while later saying something along the lines of, don't worry about it, dude. I'm chilling in Greece, great wine, great people, you know, don't worry about it. So Clodius is dead and Milo has been exiled. And normally in Roman history, this is where things calm down. There's a big social upheaval, years long, and then it breaks, the two major players are out, and things finally have a chance to calm down before the next ridiculous social upheaval. The problem was that the next ridiculous social upheaval had already started, just that no one knew it yet. I would say this was the calm before the storm, but in reality, the storm had just been going the whole time. The storm had started before Clodius and Milo, and the storm was still going after Milo, after Clodius was dead. And that storm is one man named Gaius Julius Caesar. For years, Roman society had been split into two parts. The people, as in the common people, the plebeians, and the senate, the aristocrats. And reflected this were the two main political parties, the populares, who believed that power came from the people, and the optimates, who, came, who believed that power came from the senate. The senate being the made entirely of the noble aristocratic class. But that wasn't the only thing going on. This class split had been going on for hundreds and hundreds of, not hundreds, hundreds, just hundreds of years, a long time, and every day it grew bigger and bigger. There was also the problem of the army. Now, in the ancient world, and especially for a growing, conquering power like Rome, armies were everything. An individual could become a general, make wealth, fame, and fortune as conquering random land somewhere. That's what Julius Caesar did. But the thing with army, especially in the ancient world, is that the Roman government wasn't the one who fed, paid, or supplied these armies. It was usually their general. I mean, lots of times, these guys were plucked from the field by that general. They were raised, fed, and supported by that general. So all too often, the soldiers' loyalty wasn't to a city they had never seen, or a senate they didn't know. It was to the man who fed and supplied them. And if that man happened to win them a bunch of victories and bring them booty and looting and glory and that kind of thing, well then, armies tended to be loyal not to Rome, but to an individual general. There's no real replication of this in the modern world today, at least not in any of the major powers like the Roman Republic would have been. I mean, think of America. Soldiers, of course, are loyal to a general, but not over the country. If a general says to, you know, march on Washington, D.C. just out of nowhere, the army's going to say no. Another thing is that generals aren't as popular in America today as they were in the ancient republic. I mean, back then, generals were like, you know, names in the street kind of celebrities. Nowadays, I don't know that many people who can even name that many generals, let alone know their achievements or, you know, worship them like heroes. But these were different times. The best way back then to prove your dominance was generally, unless you were really smart about it, beating the bejesus out of people through military force. And so generals were often well-known, as they brought glory and renown to their families and to the Roman people. Can't you just hear it? If you're just a Roman plebeian on the street, you know, you hear about all these great victories your country's winning, you're like, yeah, Rome, Rome, Rome. The crowd goes nuts. They love that thing. People like to win. 
So what if the general's abusing his power a little bit? He's winning. And the Roman people like winners. Anyways, what this all means is that a general could march on Rome with his army, and the army would support him, and that general could take Rome, and whoever controlled Rome controlled the entire republic. Sulla had done this once before. Remember Sulla from way back in episode 1? He was the guy who had done the same thing with his army, marched on Rome, defeated the other general trying to do the same thing, Gaius Marius, and established himself as dictator. He overshadowed much of Cicero's early career, and we talked about him a little, but the point is that by doing that, decades and decades before what, we, what we're talking about now, Sulla had set a precedent by marching on Rome with an army loyal to him personally, not the Republic, he was able to take control of the city against the will of the Senate, install himself as dictator, and rule basically the entire Republic from Rome. It was a coup. It was, you know, just a straight-up military takeover. Now, once Sulla was dictator, he had put in a bunch of legislation and laws and stuff to try to stop any general from doing what he had just done, you know? But it was too late. The precedent had already been set. Everyone knew that if you were popular enough and if you had an army behind you, you could probably take Rome if you wanted to. So, in addition to the intensifying class split and the possibility of a rogue army, the Roman constitutional system was also starting to wear especially thin. Politicians were able to freeze government functions by blocking legislation through a complex system of checks and balances. Basically, it was just a stalemate. Neither side would compromise, neither side would budge, and so nothing got done. And, like, people say nothing got done, like, in, a, in the American government today, where a few things get done, but nothing important. This was almost nothing, nothing got done. Neither side refused to budge. People would do the equivalent of filibuster. They'd stall. They'd come up with some archaic reason not to vote. They'd find some obscure law from out of nowhere. It was a mess. The entire government was just paralyzed. The Senate couldn't do agree on anything. And a political stalemate started to ensue as the two sides fight. Eventually, it got to the point where the first triumvirate, remember the, the political alliance slash conspiracy between Pompey, Julius Caesar, and Crassus, became one of the only forces that could even pass any laws. Which, when the corrupt conspiracy is the one passing all of your laws, good and bad, that's when you know you've got a problem. So, let's talk about the first triumvirate for a bit. These three guys, their system was that we're the most powerful, so we'll use our influence to get each other what we want. So say, let's say, uh, Pompey wants land reforms for his veterans, Caesar will give that to him uh, from his position as consul in exchange for Pompey endorsing Caesar in the next election, stuff like that. You know, just tit-for-tat trade-offs, and these three together wielded a ton of power. They basically controlled the Republic, especially when the Senate found itself too divided to do anything. The way it was split up was this. Crassus controlled and influenced all the aristocrats, the oligarchy, and much of the Senate with his wealth and prestige. Caesar had lots of support among the common people and the plebeians. He was a populist. And Pompey had the support of the army. He was a great general, experienced, and he had a corps of seasoned and proud soldiers behind him. One example of this tit-for-tat relationship they had was, during the time where all of this stuff is happening, Pompey and Crassus get together... Uh, and agree that they're going to help use their influence to elect Caesar to a consul, cons the post as consul. In exchange, once Caesar's elected, he promised to pass land reforms for Pompey's veterans, and he pushes them through the stalemate of the Senate with his influence and with the influence of the other two. That's kind of how this relationship worked. 
Now, once Caesar's term as consul is done, the traditional thing for an ex-consul was to be appointed as a governor of a province somewhere after a certain amount of time, which would have been the norm it was for most of the consuls before Caesar, and Caesar expected it to be given to him too. But instead, the Senate, the Optimates especially, had gotten super-duper nervous about this Caesar guy. He was really popular with the people. Much like Clodius, the Senate was super wary of any sort of populace that threatened their control. And unlike Clodius, Caesar was not making himself a ton of enemies. He wasn't out in the street beating people up, and he was still a danger. They didn't want him to have a position as powerful as a governorship, where he'd have soldiers and a province under his command. So instead, they tried to shaft him. No, they said, and I, I kid you not, they tried to put him in charge of woods and fields in Italy. They tried to shunt him off to some random, tiny administrative position to keep him from having control of anything potentially dangerous. But, unfortunately, the triumvirate stepped in, Pompey and Crassus, and they used their influence and bribing power to come up with a new deal. Instead of being appointed to some glorified grounds groundskeeper position, Caesar was made the governor of three provinces. These are Cisalpine Gaul, Transalpine Gaul, and Illyria. Basically, this is basically like all of northern Italy, between Italy and France, that whole region. Normally, the term of a governor is one year. Caesar was given five, and he was also given four legions. A legion is like an army corps, a Roman army corps, basically, to use as he sees fit. Was this an triumvirate abuse of power? Absolutely, but, you know, who's counting? So, how does this all tie back to Cicero? Well, Cicero had spoken out against Caesar, again feeling he, feel, fearing the man's ambition and power and populist policies, but eventually he was forced to kind of fall back after the triumvirates basically, well, basically you can't mess with the triumvirate. Even someone as powerful as Cicero could be shunted into political, well, political irrelevance, basically. The triumvirate was that power. And Caesar, powerful, and Caesar was a part of that. So when Cicero started attacking him, uh, the other three of them kind of, you know, put some pressure on him and got Cicero to back down. He figured it wasn't worth losing everything just to go after Caesar. And eventually he started backing out of politics entirely. He focuses instead on his writings and his literature, and lots of the stuff that he's most well known for today. But this was a, more of a quiet time in his life. And then, of course, everything with Clodius starts happening, you know... Things go down, Cicero starts to edge back into politics, Clodius spins out of control, Pompey recruits Milo and his gangs, the fight back, years of fighting, street violence, blah blah blah. And all of that's going nuts, and that's Cicero's life. So, what's happening with Caesar during all this time? Well, in 56 BC, Caesar got another five years of governorship from the Senate, again thanks to the super corrupt influence of the triumvirate. He, in exchange for that, for his five years, he sends his soldiers, his veterans, back to Rome to vote for Pompey and Crassus as consuls in the next election. So basically, Pompey and Crassus guarantee Caesar five more years as a governor, and Caesar sends a bunch of his soldiers back to add votes to Pompey and Crassus' side in the election. But while this is going on, the first triumvirate is fracturing. And this is a bad thing, because while the Senate is fighting with itself, they control almost all of the Republic and you don't want to have them split. So what caused this fracture? Well, first of all, Caesar and Pompey had been, their closest bond had been this lady named Julia. Julia was Caesar's child, his daughter, his only child from his marriages, and renowned for her beauty and virtue and all that kind of thing, but most importantly, she was married to Pompey. So 
Pompey and Caesar were literally relatives in blood, not in blood, but, you know, legally. But around this time, Julia dies, and that link between Caesar and Pompey is broken forever. So that's the big thing holding the two generals together, just snaps. And then comes the big kicker, uh, Crassus dies. How does that happen? Well, around this time, um, after all of this, you know, governor and election thing had passed, Crassus was set to leave to be the wealth, the governor of the wealthy, wealthy province of Syria, excuse me. But he didn't want to just be governor, he wanted to do some conquest. The east in this, uh, in this era, the east being, you know, like Turkey, Asia Minor, that kind of thing, is what the Romans called it, um... Uh, Western Asia, that kind of thing, was super rich. Lots of trade routes, spice, the whole shebang. And Crassus wanted in, both for the wealth and also to prove to himself, the other triumphants, that he's just as capable of a military commander as they are. He's more than just money. Uh, poor Crassus. Anyways. <clears throat> During this time, Crassus is set to leave to be the governor of the province of Syria. He wanted to meet with Cicero and reconcile with him before he left. Remember, Cicero and Crassus kind of hated each other. Cicero agreed, but how well the dinner went, they had a dinner, you know, like makeup dinner, is debatable. It doesn't seem that Cicero enjoyed it. But with that dinner out of the way, Crassus leaves for Syria, and he is never coming back. He set out on an ill-fated expedition to conquer the region of Parthia, which is basically another nation out there, both for its wealth and to prove to Julius Caesar and Pompey that he was more than money. Remember, Crassus, Pompey, and Caesar are the first p powerful political alliance called the First Triumvirate. So, another country in this eastern region was called Armenia, and they were allies with the Romans. The king of Armenia, a Roman ally, offered Crassus 40,000 soldiers, plus the soldiers Crassus already had with him, on the condition that Crassus take his troops through the longer, more indirect through, through, through the Armenian mountains. Armenia is like northeastern Turkey-ish. This route was slow and long, but it was also a lot safer and a lot easier to supply, which is why the king wanted his soldiers to go that way. But Crassus was having none of that. He wanted to move fast, and he wanted big, decisive action. He'd already set his troops on starting to raid the Parthian border with quick, successful skirmishes, and he decided that, you know what, he doesn't need the extra soldiers, he can handle it, and he takes the shortcut straight across the desert. This is much more dangerous, and we'll see why in a second. The Parthians put up some minor resistance, but mostly they just fall back and fall back. It looks like Crassus is crushing them, you know? The battles are short, they're brief, and it, the Parthians are always running away. And Crassus is just charging on ahead, across the desert, in just total victory. They eventually make it all the way to this place called Kare. There, he has his column all strung out, basically all soldiers in one big, giant line, marching through the desert after recruiting Parthians when he gets ambushed. A bunch of Parthian soldiers hiding um, in the desert charge him from the side. His troops are split up, they're scattered, they're stretched along this big line, and they're, taught, they're caught totally unprepared. The way the Parthians fought was a lot different from the Romans. The Romans focused on heavy infantry. They're, you know, they're legionaries, the famous guys. Everyone knows them, I would hope. But basically, their big thing was the foot soldiers. The Parthians, on the other hand, were archers all the way. And a lot of their guys on archers were on horseback. So their strategy was just pelt the enemy with as many arrows until they, as you can until they all die. Now, the Roman army is 
pretty well suited to handle arrow fire, but even they have a breaking point. So the entire day, the column has to stop, and all the soldiers just crouching under their shields, just taking this withering storm of Parthian arrows all day. A lot of them are killed. So after a full day of being stuck in place, being bombarded by arrows, night comes, and the survivors of the Procrastus' column eventually are able to retreat, but they have to leave all of their wounded people behind, because they're just too slow without them. Uh, the Parthians found these prisoners and murdered them. Ah, gotta love ancient warfare. The soldiers eventually make it back to, a, to the fort they'd constructed and shelter in there for the night. And they're like on the verge of mutiny. Most of them have been killed. They're surrounded. They're exhausted. They're terrified. And they're like about to kick Crassus out of the fort to the Parthians if he doesn't try to negotiate a surrender. And Crassus is not in a good shape right now. I mean, his army has just been destroyed. His son was killed in the battle. And now his army, the survivors, are turning against him. So, the soldiers, on the verge of mutiny, demand Crassus negotiate peace with the Parthians, who had offered to negotiate. The Parthian king had sent out a dude saying, Hey, you know, we should have peace. We'll let you go. You know, we'll figure something out. Surrender deal. Crassus agrees. He says, Okay, we'll negotiate. But during the negotiations, the Parthians show up, and they, um... They're all on horseback, and Crassus and some of his lieutenants walk out to meet them. They're kind of meeting outside, and the Parthians offer Crassus a horse to ride back to camp. So apparently what happened, if the sources can be believed, is that one of the Parthians offered Crassus a horse to ride back to the camp. One of Crassus's lieutenants apparently panicked, thought it was a trap, and as soon as Crassus hopped on the horse, this lieutenant grabbed him and yanked him off, ostensibly to save his life, although from what I'm not exactly sure... So Crassus gets yanked off the horse and hits the ground, and everyone starts crowding around him. You know, this is probably the most important guy in the whole group. There's some pushing, there's some shoving, and the two sides start fighting, getting more aggressive, until finally, the same lieutenant grabs a sword and kills one of the Parthians. You can probably guess what's happened. what happens next. Everyone starts grabbing swords, some get away, some are killed, including Crassus. Much the same way that Clodius died, I might note, you know, two groups of people, someone bumps into someone else, pushing, shoving, turns into knives and swords, and then everyone's dead. It's a brutal story. According to legend, the Parthians then took Crassus' body and poured molten gold down his throat to mock his greed and love of wealth. And that is it. Crassus is dead, and the first triumvirate is permanently and totally shattered. It's not even the first triumvirate anymore, it's... The first diumvirate, because now one of the three is dead. Hoo-hoo, what fun. We didn't get to talk about Crassus much in this story, but he's an interesting figure in his own right. Wealthy, he backed a lot of things that Cicero did not like. He and Cicero were adversaries. So, from our lens, from Cicero's point of view, he is the quote-unquote bad guy. But I still think, even from 2,000 years on, some humanity still shines through. The details about Crassus trying to make peace with Cicero because of the, lo the love Crassus' his son had for literature, and um, his love that same son's respect for Cicero, his desire to please his son, and also his desire to prove that he was more than just his money. He could be a general too. Eventually, that desire got him killed. So Crassus's failed invasion of Parthia and his subsequent death happened in 53 BC. Clodius was killed in 52 BC. And now that Crassus and Clodius are dead, Pompey and Caesar 
are really the only two powerful men left standing in Rome. Naturally, they're going to set up to be adversaries. That's how, you know, things work. Only two strong things are left. Naturally, they're going to start butting heads. So just a recap on the situation. Clodius was just killed and in years of street violence, but now all of his supporters are mad. Crassus is dead. The triumvirate is shattered. The Senate is gridlocked. Caesar is rampaging around in Gaul with no checks whatsoever. And things are not looking so great. Now, we talk a lot about Clodius in a negative way from Cicero's point of view, but he did have a lot of supporters. And mostly when I say supporters, when I from now on, we're going to be talking about his hardcore, you know, like, almost cult-like supporters, the Clodius partisans through and through. Imagine any politician or major figure today. There are fans of them, and then there are their super fans, you know, those people who are with them till the end, do or die. Well, Clodius had people like that too, his ultra-radicals, and they are furious after his death. He becomes a martyr to them. During his funeral, everything just goes to complete shit. Oh, that's the first time I've sworn on this podcast. Wow. Everything just goes to absolute shit. The the attendees of the funeral start rioting, and then more people come in from the city, and eventually turns into a giant riot led by Clodius's ultra-radical supporters. They march through the city, take his body, and toss it in the Senate building and build a giant pyre to it. Basically a big mound of things to burn that they're going to burn his body on top of. They take a torch, set the pyre on, fi- on fire, and then set the entire Senate building on fire. That's the equivalent of a politician today getting killed, and then their supporters taking their body, tossing it into the, into the, the Capitol building, and burning the whole thing down as a statement. Pretty, pretty big deal, and does not reflect well on the ability of the Senate to control the streets of Rome. These riots are chaotic, and they're destructive, and it's just a whole mess. And the Senate, in desperation, the Optimates turn to Pompey for help. Like, we need to restore order because we cannot control the mob. So they give, make Pompey the sole consul for the year and give him emergency powers, much like they did with Cicero during Catiline's Rebellion. Pompey ra- rallies his army and marches into Rome, and Rome is put under total martial law. It's brutal, it's a dictatorship, but it is effective, and the riots and Clodius's ultra-violent um, and ultra-dedicated supporters are quashed. Pompey, from this point on, is going to be made, willingly or not, the champion of the Optimates. They see him as their trump card. Like, you may have all of that, but we still have the best general, Pompey. Right, guys? That's right. Aristocrats forever. Anyways. With Clodius' death, Caesar is now one of the only major populares left standing. So, what has Caesar been doing all this time? Well, the reason Caesar went into Gaul in the first place at all was because he was broke. He was broke and in debt, and lots of people were hounding him, and he needed some way to win glory and prestige and also money. The best way to do all three of those? It's to get a generalship. He hopped around for a bit before eventually receiving a command in Gaul. And when I say Gaul, Gaul is really a reference to a geographic area rather than a nation. It's not. It's a bunch of tribes and loose confederations all stuck together in northern France with a bunch of different ethnic kind of cultural divides between Germanic people and Gallic people and British people. It's the whole thing. So it's not like Gaul is not a country. Gaul is just a region. But Zulius Caesar is going to conquer all of that, much like some conquistador or, or frontiersman conquering a bunch of native tribes in the New World.
I actually think the analogy between Julius Caesar and, say, American pioneers works, works amazingly well, except for one difference. The natives really never stood a shot against European powers, but the Gauls could very well beat the Romans. The technology is almost similar. They all use swords and spears and whatnot. The Romans have an edge in tactics and um, strategic command as well as cohesion and all that stuff, but the Gauls have a huge advantage of numbers and they're on their own turf. This could go either way. It's a fascinating story, but whatever. That's irrelevant. Anyway, so Julius Caesar gets an army, and he starts um, taking it out, out into the field. His reasoning is that there is a lot of unrest, and this is true. There's a lot of unrest going on in Gaul while this is all going on. There's a big tribe migration. Some uh, ancient rivalries are sprouting up again, and there are these t three different factions kind of forming, all kind of fighting each other. At the same time, there's a mass migration of people coming in from other parts of Europe. So things are kind of unstable. So Cicero's going in there like, hey, gee whiz, our neighbors are unstable, and Rome has to have stable boundaries. It's the same reason why any country doesn't want an unstable, you know, like, war zone next to their border. It's not good for them. And Rome with Gaul especially is a sore spot. The only people to have ever conquered Rome up to this point, and who will ever conquer it for the next four centuries, are the Gauls. This was before Rome was even an empire, or even a republic. This was when the city of Rome was just that, a city, a city-state. There was a battle, a Gallic raiding force came down all the way into Italy and plundered the city. It was embarrassing, and the Romans never really forgot, you know, one of those ancient grudges. So no one really minds Caesar going into Gaul. They think they're, you know, uncivilized barbarians regardless. But Caesar goes, hey, you guys, someone's got to go stabilize this, you know, and, I mean, I just, you know, I will take it upon myself, do the hard work of doing it, no need to thank me. So Caesar goes in and conquers southern Gaul, northern Italy, that region. So now that's stabilized. But by doing so, the question is raised, you know, well, now that I've conquered that, now you're just next door to more unstable tribes. You just created a new unstable border. Every time you conquer something to try to stabilize it, you're just making more unstable borders next to it. It never stops. And maybe that's the point. Caesar wants as much conquering and as much support as he can get from this. And the Roman people love it. I mean, as news comes in of Caesar's victory after victory after victory in Gaul, and all these great things, the Roman people eat it up. They love it. It's like a, like a, like a national hero at this point. Now, it's not easy. Caesar has to fight some tough battles, and lots of giant, giant mass rebellions and all that stuff. But Caesar's a lot of things. He's an adept politician, he is a skilled governor, and he's also one hell of a general. And he's able to outmaneuver the Gauls almost all of the time. He defeats most of them in France, he conquers that whole region, based almost all of France. He counters a Germanic thrust from other peoples coming in from the German area, pushes them back. He even sends an expedition off into Britain for just, you know, just for kicks, just to see what's over there. He is, um, crazy, and while he's winning these battles, he's boosting his army size. Remember, he started off with four legions, by the time he's done in Gaul with his conquests, he has ten. And these other ten, these, I'm sorry, these other six, are not appointed by the Senate like the first four were, they are raised, fed, and supplied by Caesar. And all ten of these legions in total have been made heroes and victors, and a lot of them have been given gotten wealthier from looting and stuff and by land grants from Caesar and him leading them to victory. So they're intensely loyal to Caesar after some rough spots, but, you know, we don't have to get into that. 
By this time, by 52-51 BC, Caesar is at the top of his game. His armies are in tip-top shape, they're experienced, they're loyal directly to him, and they're some of the best ones on the planet. I mean, the man had conquered almost an area, basically conquered France in ancient times. No mean feat. Again, you see this pattern of you conquer one region to quote-unquote stabilize the borders, and then you just create three new unstable borders. What do you have to do? Well, you gotta go in and conquer them, too, and then each one you conquer makes three more unstable borders. I don't think Caesar's an idiot. I think he knows that he's never gonna be able to stabilize a border if he's just making new unstable borders. I think this is just a front for an excuse to go in and conquer more stuff and reap the benefits. And, you know, the people in Rome love it, so what can the Senate do? You might ask, when does it stop? If you just keep conquering and conquering, you're always going to end up next to some unstable tribe that you can claim is damaging and erratic and needs to be conquered and civilized to keep Rome safe. Well, the answer is, it doesn't stop. The more you conquer, the more unstable boundaries you create as your empire expands, the more you need to conquer. It's a vicious cycle. It never stops. And that's kind of Caesar's point. He can keep conquering and conquering with almost no repercussions. And it just will never stop. Well, I mean, well, it does eventually stop when the Romans get absolutely curb-stomped by a bunch of Germans in the woods in, like, a hundred years, but, you know, we don't have to talk about that. Anyways. <clears throat> so, the main takeaway from that is that Caesar has conquered everything, shown himself to be a really talented general, equal to or almost better than Pompey, and won lots of wealth for himself, a powerful army that's huge, like 50,000 guys behind him, loyal directly to him, not the Roman Republic, to Caesar, and lots of popularity with the common people of Rome. He's a hero. After Clodius was dead, the Optimates turned their attention to their next most obvious threat, which in this case was Caesar. Wrapping up his conquest in Gaul, the man had a giant army and a lot of support, both things the Optimates did not like. So Cato and company, remember Cato is the super arch-conservative leader of the Optimates, feared Cicero might try to, excuse me, feared Caesar might try to exploit his popularity and march on Rome. They saw him as a threat to the Republic, and Pompey agreed. Cato starts stringing together, so what they do is Cato starts stringing together an anti-Caesar alliance in the Senate, a bunch of the Optimates, and they try to recruit some of the less committed, less firm Optimates to their side in a coalition to curb Caesar's power. But curbing Caesar's power for the Optimates is easier said than done. They want to remove Caesar, but his army, ten legions strong, is too big to face in a conflict head-on. Besides, if they can resolve this without having to fight another civil war, they would rather do that. But of course, the next alternative would be, well, make Caesar dead politically, vote him out of everything, make it so he is nothing but his army, and no support. The problem is, Caesar has lots of support, especially among the common people. So, you can't win a political fight, he just has way too many supporters, way more than the Optimates have. And to make things worse, someone realized that, wait, gee whiz you guys, Caesar is applied to be consul in like two years, in 48 BC. So, initially this had been ignored in the chaos of the 50-51 BC riots and Clodius' whole thing, but now this became an imminent threat as it seemed he would likely win. If Caesar was allowed to run, as he had planned to, in 48 BC, he would win and have a consular ship in the city of Rome and a giant army outside. He would basically, and of course, you know, all the people supporting him, he could have de facto leadership of the Republic if he played his cards right. And the Optimates were not willing to take that chance. Additionally, 
Being consul gave Caesar immunity from all of the abuses of power he had committed while he was governor of these provinces and while in Gaul. Because all of these wars he had done, they were totally unauthorized. It was super illegal. Just like an American general can't just, you know, decide, look at Pakistan one day and said, hey, I don't like these guys. We're going to go invade them. They can't do that. Caesar could not just go and invade these tribes. Some of them were allies of Rome, and some of them had, like, a negotiated trading status. It was totally illegal and an abuse of power, but Caesar did it anyway. Normally, the Romans would never stand for something like this. There have been stories of them, of generals doing this, at, w at which point the Senate recalls the army, chain arrests the general, and, like, leaves them in chains in front of the enemy city, saying, hi, sorry, they couldn't do that, but, like, here, you can have him, for something as minor as making an unauthorized trade deal. Caesar had conquered an unauthorized continent. The Optimatus' best course to remove Caesar as a threat would have probably been to arrest him for these charges and either exile or execute or imprison him or something like that, basically make him a non-factor. So, if he was elected consul, Caesar would have legal immunity from prosecution for all of the unauthorized wars, abuses of power, and unethical political practices like the triumvirate that the Senate could try to bring him up on. So, he really wanted that post, and the senators, especially the Optimates, really did not want him to have it. So, their solution? The Senate and the Optimates find some absolute BS law, this, this total legal loophole that's really not legit, and everyone knew it, but they find this loophole that says, oh, well, actually, the law says it doesn't, but we'll pretend it does. The law says you have to resign your army and your governorship in 51 BC, rather than 49 BC, like originally planned. Basically, they're going to make him cut all of his authority early, and there'll be a year between when his governorship is now supposed to end versus when his consular run, his election run, can start. And in that year, he will be nothing more than a private citizen. He won't be a governor, a general, or a consul, which makes him liable to criminal charges. So the plan is make him, force him to resign and then charge him, arrest him, and make it so he can't run for consul. It's honestly a pretty good plan, but unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Caesar knew he had a legal basis to continue his governorship. Whatever his abuses of power were, the Senate couldn't just, you know, make up a law, which is what they tried to do, so he chose to do nothing. The deadline for resigning came and went, and nothing happened. The Senate really couldn't do much, so that plan went kaput, but hey, you guys tried. Now, you'll probably notice I haven't mentioned the whole main character of our series, who is Cicero, because he actually hasn't been in Rome while all this is going on. Around this time, Cicero was made the governor of Sicilia, which is like southern Turkey, basically. Over there, basically, you know, like, restore order, governor for a bit, make it good, then come back here. It's not strange. Prominent Romans, especially politicians, were usually given governors in some province somewhere to kind of hone their chops, either to gain power or just kind of a break in a chill province somewhere, and Cicero was no different. So he was sent to Sicilia to govern for a couple of years. And by all accounts, Cicero was a superb governor and a model politician and a human being. His objective was to keep the region loyal and obedient to the regional king, who was an ally of Rome. Basically, keep him loyal to the king, the king stays loyal to Rome, everyone's happy. And he was able to do this, guess what, without conquering anybody, through diplomacy. Ooh, what fun. He secured the, re the province's loyalty without a single drop of blood. And once Crassus was killed, 
and the Sicilians kind of got nervous about, you know, the Romans' ability to, you know, stand up to them against the Parthians. By all accounts, he was a gentle governor. Quote, He would not accept gifts, even when the kings offered them, and he remitted the cost of public entertainments. He himself daily received the clever and accomplished men of the province, not extravagantly, but liberally. His house had no porter, nor did anyone ever find him lying in bed. But early in the morning, standing or walking before, by, be, before his room, he received those who came to meet him in person. It is said that he never ordered anyone to be beaten with rods or to have their clothes torn off. He never swore at anyone in anger or inflicted humiliating punishments. Finding that large sums of public monies had been embezzled, he recovered them and made the cities prosperous and allowed those who made restitution to retain without further punishment their rights as citizens. He also engaged in war, routing the robbers who lived on Mount Amanus, for which he was hailed by his soldiers as, as Imperator. And when Caelius the orator asked him to send panthers from Sicilia for a spectacle, a game at Rome, Cicero, plumbing himself on his accomplishments, wrote to him that there were no panthers in Sicilia, for they had fled to Caria, offended that in so general a piece they had become the only objects of attack. End quote. That was Plutarch. So yeah, Cicero was a kind general, he was merciful, he was adept, he crushed corruption, and militarily speaking, he was able to keep peace, and the only military conflicts he had to fight were engagements with robbers, which he won. His soldiers gave him the title of Imperator. Basically, an army could, if the general was really good and they were really feeling like it, they could give the general a title of Imperator, and that was a huge kind of political points in Rome. And this didn't happen all that often. And Cicero doesn't usually get remembered as for his generalship, nor should he, but clearly he was doing something right. All the great generals in Roman history, Pompey, Sulla, all have been hailed as imperators. Cicero was a scholar, but clearly he knew his stuff because he was also hailed as an imperator. And that's it. Cicero comes in, he makes the region prosperous, he makes it peaceful, he crushes corruption, he's merciful, he compromises, he's a, he's a model governor. On his way back, after his governorship is over, he stops by in Athens, brushes up on his philosophy with some of his ex-friends, and then comes back to Rome. Uh, you know, Cicero's life is going great at this point. Clodius, the Clodius problem has been dealt with. He just came off an awesome governorship. He's just chilling with his philosopher friends in Greece. He's finally heading back to Rome, only to find out that, holy crap, everything is going to shit. What exactly is going to shit? Well... This is where our story of Caesar and of Cicero collides once again. So, while when, when by the time Cicero comes back, a Pompeian faction led by Cato, who's anti-Caesar in the Senate, is formed and they've they've got their you know, they've got their anti-Caesar squad and Pompey is their champion. So, they are continually trying to order a recall of Cicero, bring him back, strip him of his command, but Caesar's allies in the faction, the Caesarian faction, led by Curio and Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Antony, some of you might remember that name from Cleopatra's, but he'll be important later, I promise, but anyway, Caesar's supporters, led by Mark Antony and this guy named Curio, are continually vetoing a vote. They're tribunes. Caesar has the support of a tribune of the tribunes. Antony and Curio are both tribunes, and tribunes can veto any senate decree, and they do that, uh, again and again and uh, again. 
the Senate says, we're going to bring Caesar back. And the tribunes are like, oh, no, you're not, because the tribunes love Caesar. The Senate says, okay, no, we're going to bring him back. And the tribunes like, oh, no, you're not. And this goes on for a long time. It's a deadlock. So the Caesarian faction, and the Pompeian faction are gridlocked. No one can move the other. And this whole time, that means Senate can't bring Caesar back. So Pompey eventually steps in and he offers, okay, tell you what, I will resign the command of all of my soldiers if Caesar resigns the command of all of his and Caesar does it first. Which, which at which point the Caesar people in the Senate are like, oh, no, 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 you resign first. And then the Pompeian people say, no, 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 Caesar resigns first. And we are back at the same place, which is deadlock. Oh, boy. And this deadlock continues, as neither side is willing to leave themselves open and exposed by surrendering their best general. So, at this point, Caesar decides that he, no, he's had enough of this. He's tired of this constant recall order nonsense, and he wants free reign. So, what he does is he takes one singular legion, he has ten, he only takes one, and he marches to northern Italy, to the city of Ravenna, either to just camp there for the winter, or maybe as kind of a threat, a message to the Senate. But this is all still within his province, and he's only taking a tenth of his army with him, so he doesn't really have any total evil Knievel plans yet. But he goes to the city, his army camps there for the winter, and he writes a letter to the Senate. He says, okay, tell you what, I'll resign if Pompey resigns first. The exact same deal his supporters in the Senate, Antony and Curio, had been pushing. So, you know, I'm sure you know how the Optimatis took that. It came back with a big, fat no. And Caesar probably knew this deal wouldn't be accepted. It was likely, or possibly, a political ploy to kind of show him as like, I know I tried to reason with them, I tried to make peace, and they just would not compromise with me. And this is where things really start going south. Because somewhere along the line of ancient ancient messaging, remember, there's no cell phones, no, no telephones or anything like that. This is passed by word of mouth and by physically walking from one place to the next to deliver news. And somewhere along this news, a miscommunication happens, a super major miscommunication happens that results in the Senate being told that Caesar has four legions in Ravenna and not just one, which is a huge difference. One legion can be like, you know, like an escort force, you know, just a garrison. Four legions is probably an invasion army. And the Senate panics. They're like, oh my gosh, he's threatening us. He's trying to cow us into submission. He's trying to blackmail us. The Optimatis, in typical Optimati fashion, will not be blackmailed by some rogue general and say, send him an order saying to stand down immediately or so help me God. And they all take the additional step. This is new. They authorize Pompey to begin assembling an army to defend Rome. Now, the Optimates were super confident in Pompey, so much so that they didn't make all the preparations they could have. There is a saying that Pompey was so popular he could stamp his feet and legions would sprout up from the ground. That's how confident they were in his ability to rally a bunch of soldiers to his cause. And this was some overconfidence, to say the least, but they didn't know that yet. They counted on Pompey being able to, to rally, manage, and command a massive army to crush Caesar into the dust. So they tell him to start, you know, get ready for that. And by the way, this isn't a dig on Pompey's generalship. He's a very capable general and a popular one, but he's just not as popular or as, you know, usable as the Optimatists seem to think he is. 
So Cicero comes back to Rome just as things are hitting their breaking point. And Cicero, between Caesar and Pompey, he supported Pompey. He didn't love either of them as in this conflict, but he supported Pompey, mostly as a defender of the Republic. He did not want to see another general dictator like Sulla, except this time in Caesar. However, he avoided openly alienating Caesar by attacking him again. He actually wrote to Caesar and met with Pompey personally, trying to bring them to some sort of compromise to avoid civil war. He was trying his best. He wanted the Republic and the democratic institutions to be saved, and he really, really did not want another civil war. So he used to offer to mediate between the two sides, between Pompey and Caesar, to figure something out. And he even offered to forgo his traditional triumphal march that any returning successful governor would get, and march in Caesar's instead as a show of good faith. And Cicero was a lot of things, but he was also a very, very capable diplomat. He used his diplomatic skill, and he helped negotiate and mediate a deal where Caesar offers... This is, well, this is the deal that Cicero helps to negotiate. Basically, Caesar surrenders most of his army and his territory in exchange for being allowed to run for consul in 48 BC. The Senate gets to limit Caesar's power and prevent him from taking them over you know, by force. Caesar gets continued legal immunity and all of the influence and power that being a legal consul would bring. So it's not total power, but it's a lot of power. And honestly, personally, personally speaking, this I think this is a good deal. I think I think the Optimates should have taken this deal. Cicero was a work of diplomatic, I think, genius to be able to negotiate this with Caesar, who was not a big fan of negotiating. Caesar was usually the one negotiating people into a corner, but he, but he was nowhere near the level of Cicero's diplomatic and social prowess. So Cicero gets them, gets him to agree to this deal. Pompey says, you know what? This is good. I'll take the deal. So Cicero offers this deal. Caesar says, okay, I'll do it. Pompey says, okay, I'll do it. The two sides agree. That should be it, right? Well, no, because, oh boy, guess who comes back? That's right, Cato and the arch-conservative Optimates. They refuse to support the deal, the, the deal because they hate the idea that the Senate has to negotiate instead of being obeyed. Compromise? No, no, no. Caesar's going to do exactly what we want. He's going to obey our orders, and we are not going to accept anything less. No deals. Deals are for weaklings. <sighs> it's really like, you know, a we-don't-negotiate-with-terrorists sort of vibe, even though they could have avoided so, so, so much mistakes if they had just taken this deal, but I digress. This does seem to be a theme, if I can go on a tangent, with lots of revolutions in history. The conservative old order fears the revolution so much, yet they refuse to make any changes to stem it off, and then it eventually blows up in their face, and blows up in the revolutionaries' face, too. I mean, look what happens to Caesar. Nobody wins when no one refuses to budge. But nope, the conservatives have pride. The, the Senate has to keep this precedent of being the total power and unquestionable power, so no deals. He's going to listen to all of our words, and we're not going to give a single inch. So, on December 7th, the Senate again votes to immediately strip Caesar of all of his powers and armies. Again, the Caesarian tributes, Curio, Curio and Antony, veto. Again. But this time, Cato and the Optimates bring out the nuclear button. They can't, they, they can't pass a law recalling Caesar without it getting vetoed, because those laws are vetoable. But guess what is not vetoable? Guess what Caesar's uh, tribunes cannot veto? That's right. A senatus consultum ultimum. 
That, remember, is the final Senate decree. It basically gives emergency power to a dictator for a short time to solve a crisis. It's what they gave for Cicero during Catiline's Rebellion, the same thing. And it suspends all rights, all laws, and gives a dictator emergency temporary power to deal with a crisis. And the tribunes can't veto it. So they do that. And the cons- it gives all power to the consuls, who immediately say, okay, with our new total power, we are putting Pompey in charge of everything. Okay, cheers, guys. Goodbye. Which was really the plan. The Optimatis had now made Pompey the de facto dictator of Rome. With these new powers, the Optimatis also delegate Caesar as an enemy of the state. That is a huge thing. That means they can send it. That means anyone who sees Caesar should kill on sight. It's really basically just, you know, you are no longer a Roman. You are an enemy of the state. You are outlawed. And this is the point of no return, really. That same night, Caesar's allies fled the city en masse to join Caesar in Ravenna. His supporters among the people and in the Senate, their tribunes, Mark Antony and Curio, all ditch the city and leave to join Caesar with his army in Ravenna. The same conflict that led to the assassination of the Gracchi, the revolutionary reformers, centuries before this, the Social War, the Sola versus Marius War, was now appearing again. The Populares, the younger men from the less established families or the lower nobility, versus the Optimates, the aristocrats and the nobles. Tale as old as time, except this time, it's going to break the Republic for good. They've been shaking it for years, and this time it's fatal. Now, Cicero technically sided with the Optimates in an effort to maintain the Republic, because, well, let's see. Yes, Cicero was an Optimates. He thought the Republic should be maintained in its present form, and he was not a fan of revolution or any sort of military dictatorship. But I don't... Hmm, how, how it's the best way to explain this? Cicero was very, very uh, fringe Optimates. He was not one of those die-hard Cato factions. He was probably one of the least committed Optimates there was, mostly in it for the pres- preservation of the Republic, probably less so for the preservation of noble privileges, which some of the other more conservative people were in there for. So, that's it. The battle lines are drawn quite literally with C- Caesar's army on one side and Rome and this Optimates on the other. January 10th, Caesar takes his 13th legion and his allies from Ravenna and marches to the Rubicon, the border of his province. So it's Caesar, that one legion he took, the 13th legion. Ooh, coincidence? 13? I think not. Anyway, sorry. The 13th legion and all of his allies who came to join him from the city into his big army. Not really big army, into his army. It's not, not that big. And he marches to, the, to this river called the Rubicon River. And that's kind of the border of his province, the southernmost border. And there's a rule that any general can... Like, generals are forbidden from crossing that line with an army. That rule is made to prevent this sort of thing from happening. So if Caesar crosses that line with his army, that's it. He's committing to overthrowing the Republic and destroying... Basically, he's committing to, to the civil war. He's committing to destroy the Roman Republic and replace it with him in charge. Crossing the Rubicon meant a declaration of war. It meant there's no going back. It meant it's now do or die. And once he crosses, that means his intent, like, it's clear. Once he crosses, the Senate and Pompey know he's going for Rome, and they have to fight him. This part is interesting. A lot of times Caesar gets portrayed as a tyrant, and he was certainly ambitious. I think his end goal was complete power in Rome. 
But what happens next makes me think that I don't think he originally planned to do it by force. I think his original plan was to win the election 48 BC as a consul and get political power from there to be the de facto leader of Rome. But events had spiraled out of his control. He was ambitious. The Optimates tried to check him. Things, you know, happened. And now he was here with an army at the border of his province at this river. Now, Caesar shows up this river, the whole army is raring to go, and then he stops. He stops his army camps, and he kind of retires to his tent to think. It's his decision time, after all. This is his do-or-die moment. Do I cross? Do I commit myself to this violent revolution? Remember, Caesar was a nephew of Gaius Marius, the guy who had lost the word of Sulla. Caesar and his family had been persecuted after Sulla's civil war when Sulla was dictator, so he knew how firsthand how destructive such a civil war could be. But if he disbanded his army, he could be prosecuted or executed and lose any chance at all to take power in Rome. So his ambition and self-preservation versus his wariness about where this path might lead. Caesar deliberates for almost a day at the bank of the river with the army and allies kind of just sitting there waiting for the go-ahead order. This is his big decision time. What he does here could change the course of history forever. And it does. Caesar eventually decides that a civil war and his power and his self-preservation is worth the risk of another violent crackdown like was suffered under Sulla. He steps out of his tent, he gathers his soldiers, he marches to the bank of the river. Alea Iacta Est. That's the name of this episode. It means the die is cast. Caesar, that day, takes his army across the Rubicon. The river is crossed. The Civil War has officially begun. And alea iacta est. The die is cast. I'll read you Plutarch's account of this, this moment. Quote, when it began to grow dark, he rose from the table, addressed some friendly remarks to the company, and urged them to stay until he came back. But he had already instructed a few of his friends to follow him, not all by the same route, but some way, some one way, some another. He himself entered one of the hired carriages and drove at first yet another way, but then turned toward Arminium. When he came to the river that separates Cisalpine Gaul from the rest of Italy, it is called the Rubicon. He had second thoughts. Since now he was nearing the moment of danger, and he wavered as he considered the magnitude of what he was attempting. Checking his speed, and then calling a halt, he reflected in silence. His resolution fluctuating, and his plan undergoing change after change. He spoke at length with the friends who were with him, including Asinius Polio calculating the calamities his crossing of the river would visit upon mankind. And imagining what an account of it they would leave to posterity. 
finally, in a kind of passion as if throwing aside calculation and abandoning himself to what might come, and uttering the, the phrase with which men calmly preface their plunge into reckless and daring exploits. The die is cast. He hastened to cross the river. He then advanced on it, on the run, and before it was day he entered Arminium and took it. It is said on the night before that he had a monstrous dream, for he, he dreamt he was having intercourse with his mother, an unspeakable act. As soon as Arminium was taken, it was as if wide gates were thrown open to let war in upon every land and sea, and the laws of the city were transgressed along with the boundaries of the province. One would have thought, at other times, that mere men and women were fleeing in their panic from one town of Italy to another, but that the very towns had risen up and were fleeing from refuge from one to another. Rome herself was deluged, as it were, by people pouring in from neighboring towns and by refusing to obey its magistrates or listen to reason it nearly suffered shipwreck by the violence of its own agitations for conflicting passions and violent impulses were at work everywhere. Those who rejoiced did not keep quiet, but when they met the alarmed and the aggrieved, as was likely to happen in such a large city, they provoked quarrels by their confidence in the outcome. Pompey himself was panic-stricken, finding himself attacked on all sides, some reproaching him for having strengthened Caesar against himself and the government, others blaming him for having allowed Lentulus to insult Caesar when he had made concessions and offered reasonable terms for a settlement. Favonius now told him, stamp on the ground. For on an earlier occasion, talking boastfully in the Senate, Pompey had told them not to worry about preparing for this war, since he himself, with a stamp of his foot, could fill Italy with soldiers. End quote. I love that bit. One of the Optimatists goes to Pompey and says, All right, genius, what now? Better stamp on the ground and bring us to army, because we are in trouble. The pro-Caesar faction in Rome celebrates, the Optimatists panic and go into emergency mode. The refugees are pouring in from the cities. Everyone's trying. Don't, no one knows what's going on. Refugees, towns, entire populations are fleeing from the oncoming army. All the while, Caesar continues to march. Alea hiacta est. The die is cast indeed. That's one of the badass historical moments that I live for. The die is cast. How cool is that? Well, I mean, I guess it's, it's pretty morbid considering what happens next, but... Well. What does that phrase mean? It means that Caesar is casting his die. He's rolling the dice. He's gambling everything. If he wins, he wins it all. But if he loses, he loses everything. And he's not just gambling his fate. Caesar gambles Caesar's fate when he crosses this river. He gambles Cicero's fate. He gambles Pompey's fate, Cato's fate. The fate of his army. The fate of the city of Rome, the fate of the Republic, the fate of Europe fate of the world. Imagine, what happens if Caesar decides not to cross the river? If he decides to stand down and back off? How does history change? 
Do we even remember him? Does the Republic fall? If the Republic fall doesn't fall, how does that change Europe's history? And if Europe's history is changed, well, the whole world has changed. Imperialism, colonialism, the Industrial Revolution, the World Wars. Does it happen? I mean, so much of Europe's history is messing with other people's history. If you take that out, the dominoes that make up our world, they all fall down, and the world we know could be totally unmade. I like to imagine that sometimes. What, what could have, could have all the possibilities that could have happened if Caesar had chosen a different path. History is like that. It's called the butterfly effect. Butterfly effect. A small decision is made somewhere. Caesar decides to cross the river. A scientist decides to try something new in the lab. An intern mixes up two papers and decides not to fix it. And all of history has changed, much like a butterfly flapping its wings somewhere and that breeze coalescing into a snowstorm halfway across the world. A chain reaction of dominoes falling and causing new things. That's really history. Caesar knows that the die is cast. He means that there's no going back. We're, the second we cross this river, it's do or die. The die is cast. And it's going to be one hell of a dice game.